renegade, rebel, iconoclast, visionary. We are here today with Terry Gilliam. He's talking with us about his epic, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, a film that took him 25 years to bring to the big screen. Here's that epic story. So, um, when what was the huge difference in in making this version of Don Quixote versus the one that you originally wanted to make? And I know there was a couple of starts and stops in the middle yeah. of that, but what was the huge difference? Because your budget went in half. Yeah. And then did you did you stay out of the flood zone? Oh yes. I mean, nature was very kind to us. I was waiting for it, you know, to, to wreak havoc because we were outside the whole time. We didn't have much weather cover. We had to keep moving. And it went so smoothly. It was incredible. So I get very nervous when things go well. But that was, that was the big difference. We came in on schedule, on budget. Again, another rare occasion. <laughs> and... But it had been very, I don't know how much of the story you know, because we had started, Jeremy Thomas was uh, executive producer. He had, after years, managed to get it out of the grasp of the German insurance company that ended up paying like $18 million for the... The original. Johnny Depp version, yeah, when it went down. We finally got it, and we had got a Spanish, very good line producer. Um, we had pretty much everything going. We had raised out of, it was a 16 million euro budget, and we had already raised about 12 and a half, but always that last bit had been the nightmare for many years, and I'd been involved in many different producers along the way who are all fantasists, who all claim they were the only ones who could make the movie, and of course they weren't, and they thought they were all, it would be no problem, but it always was, and basically we had, Got to this point, we had had twelve and a half million. I got Adam Driver. That was the big moment. And Amy helped you. Your Amy, your daughter. My daughter. She was the one who said, "You better meet this guy. He's bankable." So how did how did how where did she see him? And then does she, does she do all the talent outreach? Does she, is she the one not, that deals? Not always, but in this instance, she really was determined that I should meet Adam Driver. She'd seen him in Star Wars. Maybe she had seen Girls. I've never seen Girls, and I'd seen. He's amazing in Girls. You have to. see I, I hear this. Yeah. Yeah. And. And anyway, I'd seen his first Kylo Ren, so I, interesting. It wasn't anything like what I was looking for, but let's meet him. And we went to a pub in London, sat down, had lunch, and within a very short while, I said, this is the guy. He's completely different than what I was looking for. He isn't behaving like an actor. He's just, there's something deep in him that's honest. And then when he tells me about 9-11 and him joining the Marines to go and defend his country, I this is such a naive, innocent man inside this body. And, and he just intrigued me. And I, by the end of lunch, I said, I want to work with you. And, and that was it. So we had him, but for a variety of reasons, nobody was moving forward to get the last bit of the money. And, and and then I was introduced by a friend of mine who I'd done a short film with, uh, him producing, to a man called Paolo Branco, who had made, by that point, like 280 films. He had been involved with Vim Benders. Uh, he was one of the producers on Cosmopolis with uh, David Cronenberg. And I could see this guy is a pirate. He's good. He's got the energy. No problem. 16 million, done. 
We'll have it. We'll, and we and we had. And did he control a certain number of territories? Did that? No, at did that he... point, he had nothing except his belief. And uh, but the first act he did was fire the people that had the twelve and a half million, the Spanish um, online producer and the sales agent. So now, rather than having to raise just three and a half billion and go, he's got to raise 16. And we had a deadline because Adam was not going to be available. This is in 2016, so in the middle of, he was not going to be available after Christmas. So we had a deadline, all clear. And now Paolo's reputation, as I got to know him very quickly, was not good. He's made a lot of films, but he's bankrupted. But he come, he's notorious for not paying people. But I was that stage. We just have to leap because he's got the determination to prove that he could do the job. And I convinced Jeremy Thomas to let Paolo in, and I did. So very quickly, Paolo, who's a very smart, very charming man when he wants to be, is also a Jekyll and Hyde character. And in we go down to Cannes to announce that now the film was going to be made. At this point, Amazon were in. They had the U.S. and the U.K. In one day with Paolo down there, they walked out. They said, we cannot deal with this man. He was screaming and shouting at them. They were gone. So now we're starting from scratch. And it comes very clear that Paolo really doesn't understand the necessities of what we need for this film. And it's not going to be like most of his films for one and two million dollars. It is what I said it was going to be, 16 million euros, which is close to 20 million dollars. And and things just started going wrong. He was demanding this, that, and the other thing. Why did he think that he owned the film? At that point, he had the option. Okay. That's why, at that point. Yeah. And what happened, four months into our relationship, and two months before we were to start principal photography, the actors were all coming down to Lisbon to do our first reading and talk about it, and costume and all that stuff. He also had to pay me in two days my first tranche of money. And I suddenly get this email from him saying that, I mean, I'm trying to get the word, because we had been asking for months, we have to see the budget. We know what I thought of the budget. We had made one before, before he was involved. We have to see this budget. That was all my contract. Every financial thing had to be clear. My daughter, Amy, was one of the producers. He would not give us a budget. He, I had the right to uh, choose all the heads of the department. The only thing he could do is if they didn't fit their fees within the budget, he could say no. And so he's not hiring these people that we had agreed on. And I'm saying, this is getting bad. It's getting worse. He was actually, at one point, he had chosen this girl to be my personal assistant who had no training whatsoever. But she was a daughter of some rich guy, which is where he gets money. And he actually got on the film, scream, phone screaming that if I don't hire her, he's not going to do the movie. So it was threats had been building up. We couldn't see a budget. We weren't getting the people we wanted. Michael Palin at this point had agreed to pay, right. play and the he, part. And he didn't, he didn't want Palin. He Well, something he like argued that. that Mike had, could, had a bad back and blah, blah. He, it was nonsense stuff, but he, was, but he wouldn't do the deal with Mike. He was dragging on and Mike was getting more and more pissed off. So on the day, all these actors are in their cars heading to the airports around the world. He pulls the plug. But actually what I hadn't said is the day before, after this letter, two emails were wrote. He said, I will never show you the budget as long as I live. 
well, that's a, that's a bit of a problem with a contract that demands the budget must be clear. And the second day after that, he says four things. I will make all the decisions. Every decision will be mine. You have 24 hours to sign this. So where was the rest of, where was the rest of the money coming from and how did everything finally move forward? Well, no. Was it because he had a gun to your head? No, no, no. Here's how we aren't quite there. He pulls the plug. The movie is finished. All the people that we've hired are terminated. He doesn't pay them. The actors are all sent home. It's over. And one of the things that my lawyer had been working very hard is to make sure I didn't quit. Uh, and five weeks after it was finished, dead in the water. We write a letter, because in Anglo-Saxon terms, you can be, uh, oh, what's the word, there's a, a dismissal that isn't, you are basically fired without him firing you, because all your tools have been removed. All the people that I need to make move are gone. So this letter was written. Um, <laughs> Jeremy Thomas then say, it's, yeah, this is horrible. This is a horrible man, and I'm not going to give him a right, because he... At this point, Paolo had to pay money for the option. He had paid a down payment. Now he's got to cough up a couple hundred thousand. And, and Jeremy wasn't even going to wait for the fact that Paolo was not going to do it. So he said, we're gone. Now we start trying to put this whole thing back together. And we do. We, we, the Spanish producer, Paolo's co-producers that he brought on, are willing to go forward because they have already invested 300000 in it. Wow, okay. And and off we go. We managed to do it. The, we got the sales agent back who he had fired, and we got enough money. And the key to it all was having a fairy godmother. These are important figures when you're making a film. And my daughter, Amy, had met this lady who wanted to see the film made, and she, later in life, late in life, had come into quite a bit of money. She gave us $3.5 That was the bing, you're going to the ball. Wow. She wanted to see it done. She wanted to walk up the red carpet. That's so amazing. I know. Yeah. So it's that thing of when, you know, the business will only go so far, even though I've got Adam Driver, John and the, uh, Michael yeah. Palin and all this. That's it. And so off we're going. And at that point, Paolo starts sending letters. It's my film. Now, what is interesting, and this has gone on now for two years. And you basically had closed it out, and yeah, because yeah. he had tried to yeah. shut this down, and you, and there's you one, were able to resurrect this. There's one yeah. little procedural thing that he's been clinging to, but what we've, we've been involved in uh, legal uh, suits for the last two years. He has never won one. Not one of them has said he has rights to the film, but he's been sending letters out to all the distributors. Amazon have gone. I've got we had a, several good distributors who all run away. Nobody wants to be involved in these kinds of disputes. This is what has been going on because it's it's really simple. You think you're dealing with an intelligent human being. You realize you're actually dealing with a child who has a huge ego, not unlike certain presidents in certain countries. So so forty like a half an hour into this interview, the question I wanted to ask was who is the greater nemesis? Pablo Bronco or Sid Sheinberg? I think you've already answered who Sid you're... was a sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> no, when you're dealing with a psychotic, you're in a different world. And, and when you've got Pablo Bronco, who is convinced he was the only producer who could ever make this impossible film, and then he failed, 
everybody else who actually succeeds in making the film must be destroyed. I promise you we're going to talk about the, yeah. be the beautiful <laughs> aesthetics of this movie. But yeah. one, another thing about the business, you, you, you go through these epic productions such as Munchausen, what went, happened with Brazil. And even if you go back and you read about the start of Time Bandits, Time Bandits, I think you lost your money. You, you lost the funding, and then George Harrison yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. and um, another gentleman. Well, it was George's manager who became our manager, yeah. Dennis O'Brien. Yeah. Automatically created Handmade, and boom, yeah. it's it's off and running. What is it? Is it is it just the battle between art and commerce? Is it just... Or, or do you ever say "Why me, God"? Or is it? Or is this just the nature of art and commerce? It's or, like in the chaos theory, there are strange attractors. Uh huh. <laughs> or it's just the film business overall. No, the film business is that I suppose people know more about my problems because I've had people making films about the making of the film. Books have been written because they're interesting. Most people keep this quiet. They work in Hollywood. They want to pretend everybody's buddies here. Yeah. But see, but, I don't. but, but these, are t these are telltale lessons for the entire industry on how to... That's what's interesting. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know why that I have been involved in some really extraordinary ones. Uh, and maybe it's because my films are not like other films. They're not simple films. They, they often divide audiences, mm -hmm. you know, from those who just think they're the greatest things they've ever seen to others saying, it's two hours of my life wasted. You know, this is it, the way it is. I don't know, because also I demand control. There's always a problem when you've got a guy who says, this is my movie. I know it's your movie as well because you put money into it, but I have been chosen to be the creative person in it. I will listen to everybody. I will take notes. I will think about it. But I'm the guy you hired to do this stuff. And, and most people don't fight like I do. They, they are more compromising. This is probably the result of being part of Python. Six guys who had complete control of what they did. There were no producers saying, you've got to do this. There were no advisors, managers. We did what we wanted to do. We wanted to be as good as we could, and we became successful. So you develop a kind of, I'm not sure if it's confidence or arrogance, maybe both, but you do believe you have a certain skill. And I always have said, I know my mistakes are more interesting than the mistakes of a studio executive. They just are. <laughs> so the storyline of the man who killed Don Quixote, is it the same exact storyline as you had 25 years ago or no? Like when did it switch to where you're, where where Sancho was the protagonist no, th and a filmmaker? The from the beginning, there's always been the Sancho character who has been a contemporary character because I never felt we could do a film about a man in the 17th century beginning of the 17th century, who is dreaming about knights and things from the 12th century, because costume-wise, a modern audience wouldn't distinguish it. So very early on, it was the idea of a modern man ending up. In the Johnny Depp version, he gets like Connecticut Yankee coming out of his court. He gets bonked on the head, and he ends up in the 17th century with Don Quixote. And along the way after that, we changed it, which I think is better, that the guy had actually made a film uh, years before, after he had finished film school, and he involved a lot of people from this little Spanish village, and the effect it had on them, what it did, you know, it changed their lives. The girl who was the innocent, lovely little young girl in it, 
wanted to be a movie star. Went off to the big city, failed, became a model, became an escort, became basically a prostitute. Uh, and the guy who, the little shoemaker who was hired to play Don Quixote goes crazy and believes he's Don Quixote. And then you've got these characters now that are hero, the Adam Driver character, goes back to the village thinking they're going to love him. And he realizes he's created chaos in people's lives and he's stuck with these people. And that's what the story is about him in a sense. You could argue being punished uh, for what he did making movies. Now, what is it about the tale that you love, Don, about Don Quixote? The, I mean, I've got two questions here. That, but also, this, remind, this, this reminded me a lot of that it fit in, in, in um, the language of, of, of Munchausen and, mm. and, and Time Bandits. Yeah. Like, it, it just, the idea of a fantasy, and especially in the Munchausen sense, the, the elder educating the younger. Tell, tell it's, me it's, about it's that. A, almost all my films are about the battle between imagination and reality in one form or another. It, and that's what Coyote is about. It's his perception of the world is a rather noble, heroic perception. And he misunderstands what's really going on around him. Uh, you know, what he sees as a great giant that he's got to triumph over is a windmill. Uh, Coyote is about failure, is what it is. It's about failure and resilience. This old man takes on these imaginary views of the world and is constantly being thrown to the ground. He gets back up. And that's kind of been my life, you could argue, even though I don't think of it that way. But there is a, a quixotic quality in what I do, and I, I fight battles that seem to be noble and proper, and I get smacked down for them, and then you get up again. Now, when you shoot, are you, like, for example, Malik is a guy who rips up his shot list, as a, so I understand it, mm -hmm. as people have told me, because I've never spoken with him, uh, rips up his shot list and says, hey, Let's go chase that butterfly down the alley. Like he, he'll improv. Are you like that? Are you not really? Are are you very much by the letter, by the page, what the script says? Do you improvise with your actors? Do you ever? Yeah. Do you wake up one day and say, you know what? We need a bigger boat. Production designer. Let's let's try to get another five million. Is it like that or no? Not at all. There is always improv. I really hire people that can think fast on their feet, and actors come in and bring to life these things that we've written down there. And I go with them, and I can always pull them back to what we wrote. But there's new and exciting things to discover. I don't go around and say, oh, that butterfly. We, we, actually, we need a plane now rather than a butterfly. That's impossible because I'm always restricted by budgets that are smaller than my even the script that I've written. So I'm always working within the constraints of time and money. But... I will go, I will deviate from the path through the woods because, oh, that is interesting over there. But it's, I, that's one of the things about like Coyote. We come in on budget, on schedule, boom, boom, boom. People think I'm out of control. I'm not, I'm very much in control. But uh, if there's something that's new, something, another nuance you can get, yes. But I, I, I know so many stories of other directors, yes. I. I need a um, yeah, ocean-going uh, liner right now, tomorrow. Right. No, because I'm, I because I can do all the jobs of all the departments. I just hire people that are much more, much better at it than I do, and so I ask them for them to go further than they would normally do. But I know what I'm asking, and I I always thought that was important. If you're going to be a film 
maker. You've got to be a craftsman. You've got to understand how all the jobs work, what's involved. So when you ask for something, it's not demanding something stupid, ridiculous. I said, well, it could be done. You could do it this way, or you could do it your way. I mean, but, but it's all possible. So I've always ended up making films that look much more expensive than they are. Partly because I know this. So in, in the first film okay. that you were shooting, correct, correct me if I'm wrong on, on any of this, in the, fir, in the first La Mancha film with Johnny Depp, I understand you were in one of the Spanish deserts, right? Or did, where was, there was a flash flood. Yes, as de deserts often produce when you're not expecting them. <laughs> <laughs> did you, how did you change your terrain with this one? Were you like, no, 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 mm. we're not going back to the desert. We're going to go, I don't know. Like, no. did you, everything that was bad that happened to you back there, were you like, okay, we're not going to put ourselves in this situation for the second go well, around? I was at one point going to go back there just because why not? <laughs> <laughs> but I decided, no, we went to Fuerteventura in the Canary Islands instead. Uh, but a lot of the locations I had chosen, you know, even before the Johnny Depp version, uh, 30 years before. And some of those are in there. Others are, are new ones because when suddenly the financing had to go from very different uh, countries and suddenly with Paolo Branco we had to go to Portugal. So there was a monastery there that I discovered and we ended up using it. Uh, so you do adjust all the time. Uh, I like the, with the Quixote, when we rewrote the script, it was because I wanted to feel it was fresh again, not just the same tired, old, right. brilliant idea that we had back then. And you want to keep bringing it up. And then as you bring in different actors, you adjust things because they change it considerably, what you're doing. And uh, I, I, I no, but I, I always feel very constrained by the budget and time. I rail against it, but I know it's what I've got to deal with because sometimes it brings out so much adrenaline in me of anger that I come up with really good ideas. <laughs> so in um, in reading in in, in in just I've always I've always been obsessed with you, but in getting a refresher in the last twenty four hours, I something crossed my research and it was he shoots with Dutch angles. And I was like What's that? And and it was basically when you do your camera shots, and I saw a couple of those. Tell me about that. Well, is, is that is that an intentional style, or well, is that no? Just it was particularly, I suppose, in Brazil and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. We dutched a lot because it was about what is real. What there's the horizon. If you're not on drugs, it's probably horizontal. If you're on drugs, it could be yeah. at any angle. So uh -huh. we play with that. In fact. In Quixote, I shot very ordinarily. I wasn't using as wide angle lenses as I normally use. I was just trying to do it in a simpler way because I didn't want to get in the way of the actors. I didn't want to be imposing the director's viewpoint by using strange angles and all. I just kept it much more normal. <laughs> so Time Bandits I saw when I was six or seven, and then Munchausen, uh, Brazil, and Munchausen came when I was in high school. Very formative years. Um, one of the things in those three films that I was convinced of when I was young was oh, he likes to do a twist at the end. He loves to do twists. Like, I love the ending of Time Bandits. Yep. And, and Munchausen, and I, I think Brazil also. Was that intentional on your part for a while? Were you trying I to like do play, I like playing were with you the audience. To, yeah, were you trying to do a twist at the end? I mean, that it seemed to have stopped with Fisher King and 12, yeah. well, 12 Monkeys also. 
No, yeah. I like playing with the audience. I like avoiding just traditional endings where everybody lives yeah. happily ever after. I like to say there's a different way. I mean, Brazil, it's a happy ending. The guy goes crazy, but in his own head, he's happy. To right. the outside world, he looks like he's a lunatic. And so that's a way of having a happy ending. Um, I mean, in Quixote, we have a very romantic ending, which is very new for me. Musically, I was almost embarrassed that I could be that romantic. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's go back to the, let's go back to the beginning, because while you were the animator on Monty Python, I read that you got the the filmmaking bug with Terry because you would do these live shows and you wanted to add dramatic lighting. And then in, you would be in the editing room on certain things, and you had a, both of you had a very good sense of film knowledge. Just tell us about how you came to Holy Grail. Well, basically, I mean, Terry and I were always whinging and moaning about Ian, uh, Ian's direction. And, and there was BBC, bad lighting, crappy sets. And, and we just wanted to make movies where you could make things like in movies, beautiful, big, epic, all those. And so when it came to making Holy Grail, we were in a position, because all the money came in from Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Elton John, record companies, so we were completely free. We could do what we wanted. And Terry and I, just we've had enough grousing and moaning. Let's be the directors. And we said to the others, okay, can we all agree that anybody named Terry gets to direct the film? And they were happy, because directing Python is the dog's body job, because <laughs> nobody takes direction. Everybody's out there. But at least I could make it look great and deal with that. And that's what we did. We made the film, and we learn on the job. I've never been to film school. I learned on the job. <laughs> that's, ama that's amazing, because you're, you're, you're such a sublime, sublime filmmaker. The now Grail happens. Yeah. It's a cult hit. When did you real like two questions I wanted to ask you. Do you do you know in its perpetuity, not its original box office, but in its perpetuity, has Grail amassed some ungodly amount of money? No. Like because it's it was it was such a cult hit. Yeah. Like I'm in Vermont. I'm being told about it on a school bus. Kids are telling yeah. me about it. That's how I'm yeah. learning about it. Um, that's how I knew it was it. <laughs> we, we, Python, has never made the money that Hollywood oh, filmmakers make. We haven't. It's very nice. We're all living very comfortably. But we're not, I wouldn't say any of us are really rich. Do, uh, you, do each of you own a stake in it, like the, yeah. the Python franchise? No, we, we own Holy Grail, and uh, we own Life of Brian now. Uh, I think those are the only two we own. The others, you know, are owned by other people. We all get, the money keeps flowing in. It's very nice. It's a pension okay. fund. Uh, and BBC owns the original series? No, because after the fourth series, the BBC sold it to all the series, to ABC TV. ABC started bottlerizing it, chopping it to bits, making, and they couldn't understand we were bothered by this because they were gonna reach a bigger audience than we would have reached on PBS or anywhere else. And we took them to court. Mike Pett and I were in the very courtroom that John Mitchell, the Attorney General under uh, Nixon, was arraigned in. And we're fighting in court for our right to be silly, our way. 
And and we won a bit, then the ABC got an appeal, went back and forth a bit. In the end, the BBC, well, we discovered, thanks to Terry Jones, that there was a clause in our contract with the, the BBC that said the shows could only go out the way we made them. They couldn't be edited. And the BBC hadn't noticed that when they sold it to ABC. Oh, wow. So there was a settlement, and we own the shows everywhere but in the UK. Wow. Very nice, thank Very you. Very nice. Because I know I was I was over in London in early October, and I'm like, I wonder if, I want to see Terry's doing anything. And you had some sort of convention going on. Did we? In early, it this was, um, yeah, it was it was in early October. It was like a one-day thing on a Saturday. It was on our yeah, it was London a, Contenders. I think it was the Gumby event. Yes, that That's was That's right, because it's part of our 50th year yeah. anniversary of Python. We did a... Could we get the largest number of Gumbies ever gathered in one place? Yeah, so we yeah. did that. That was silly and good fun. And when you realize all these people of all ages coming from all parts of not just England, there were people from Colorado who had come in dressed as Gumbies. They had come <laughs> from New Zealand. I mean, it was quite extraordinary how Python is worldwide. I just find it amazing. <laughs> the um, So I'm jumping around here. The Time Bandit series at Apple. Are you involved in that? I'm, I have a contract that says I'm the executive producer, whatever that means. Uh, and I, I, was, I read on the internet that Taika Waititi We is, broke that news. Did we, you? Yeah, we broke that news. We were in, we were at, we were uh, co-partnering, Deadline was co-partnering a cachette conference in Israel. And there were all these Hollywood people on the stage. And yeah. there was a couple of agents from WME that got on, they kind of dropped it, that Taika Waititi was involved with this. And uh, my editor-in-chief, uh, Nellie Andreeva, and I were like, oh, my God, let's get this up. And so, so. Well, I'm glad I uh, keep in touch with you guys <laughs> to find out how my career is going. <laughs> how am I doing with Time Bandits? <laughs> but um, you tried to do a sequel to this, I read. Is this true? No. No? No, no. There no. Was, you, you, to, to Time Okay. Yeah, there was a point years ago, Hallmark Cards, we had money, and we were doing, on Charles McHugh and I wrote several new Okay. Uh, time bandits things, but then 9/11 occurred, and the Hallmarks decided to get out of the entertainment business. Yeah, when things go bad, you stay in the entertainment business normally. <laughs> so Apple hasn't phoned you up or anything. Or uh, no, Steve Golan was the producer of it. Steve Golan unfortunately died. Um, right, and so I don't know. I'm yeah. waiting for somebody to tell me. I was so delighted when I saw. Jojo Rabbit, because I didn't know about Taika Waititi, and when I saw that film, I said he's the perfect guy to do Time Bandits. Yeah, he's got the touch, the comedy, the sen uh, sensitivity. He's br he's brilliant. Yes, definitely son, uh, illegitimate son of Python. <laughs> <laughs> I would say. So, um, go going back, going back um, in the history of things, you had this great. Uh, Great, you were you had this great rise in um, in in the nineties. Like Fisher King was number one at the box office for yeah. for several weeks, yeah. and then Twelve Monkeys. I noticed the same. What came out? Like we think of you, we think Ho Terry Gilliam fights with Hollywood because of the Sid Sheinberg, because of the Variety mm. ads and all that other jazz. Is that the case, or do you love it here? Do you love? Do you like? Would you come do another studio movie again? Or is it, no, 
I am no. independent and I live over I live across the pond and <laughs> I'm fine. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, my Hollywood time was interesting because I finished Munchausen, which had, was a real nightmare. But we ended up making a good film. But we were then sort of stabbed in the back by the studio. They, right. They only made 117 prints of that film. Oh, wow. Yes. So wow. I was in a very... How? Because, no, wow. I'm like... Wow, I know. Because something. There, there had been a regime a regime change. And, of course, a new regime wants to make sure the previous regime's work is Correct. not good. Okay. Right. So we were a victim of that. I was very depressed. And uh, my agent sent me a script from Hollywood, and I read it, and I was just blown away by it. It was so good. It was a script for Fisher King. I said, the characters are wonderful. And they were trying to get Robin Williams in it. And I was the bait because Robin had done um, Munchausen. Yeah. So we were buddies. And and so we got Robin. And and then we got Jeff Bridges. And I said, well, this is great. Let's make it. I just I thought the script was so good. And we went to town. And it was an easy shoot. There were no big special effects. The thing was a piece of cake. Just give me four great actors, and off you go. And suddenly I was deemed to be a director who worked really well with actors. Before, I was just a director who worked with special effects and outrageous ideas. And, and so it was a big hit. And then out of that comes 12 Monkeys, a script they had the studio had spent a million bucks on, and nobody knew how to make it into a film, and it arrived on my desk. I said, this is fantastic, because I can see nobody knows how to do this, but I think I know how to do it. It was so cool. It still yeah. is cool. Yeah, it's, it's really good. And I have got Brad Pitt, I want to say, his, his first Oscar nomination. Yep, because yep. he, it, what was interesting about it, uh, it's me being perverse as I can be, because I cast them in opposite roles. You know, mm -hmm. Bruce was a mo motor mouth, so his char character is not the motor mouth. He barely speaks in the film. Brad is not a motor mouth, and yet his character was a motor mouth. And it worked. Mm -hmm. It could have been a disaster. <laughs> but it was interesting by doing something like that. And so when you got stars of that um, amplitude, things happen. Brad... It was interesting. While we were just in the beginning of the film, Brad and I could walk around towns, no problem, because Thelma and Louise had been out. But And just as we started the shoot, Legends of the Fall came out. And, and suddenly, and, overnight, he was just the biggest thing on the planet. Yeah. He couldn't move. Security, we had to just surround him to, to keep him alive. And it was it was quite an amazing time. But, but Brad pushed himself so he worked so hard to be that character and it was right. so untypical of what he had done before and it was brilliant and still yeah. it still is it still is um now you grew up I, I know you're originally from minnesota but you spent a lot of your years in childhood out here over the valley i want you to tell <laughs> tell me about that because once i was on the phone with mm. harry shearer yeah and he says he's he's no, an old harry's an old friend he's an old friend yeah were you? Do you have any other pals like well, Albert Brook? I met Albert. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say he's a pal. I met him a few times. Okay. Uh, and Joel Siegel. Do you remember Joel Siegel? Yes. He used to be Good Morning America. Yes. He was a film critic. He and Harry were friends. The three of us were friends when we were all in college. I mean, my family moved out here when I was 12 years old from Minnesota, and and we grew up in Panorama City in the Valley. And, uh, and then I went to university, college, uh, Occidental Occident, College. Yeah, you're very local. 
Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I didn't travel far in those days. Uh, and that was it. It was just a normal childhood. Uh, the thing was, my father was a carpenter, and I always blamed him for ne never getting a job in the studios because I thought if he worked in the studios, I'd get to see what a studio's yeah. like. But Hollywood was this idea across the hills, and I just okay. had no idea that I ever get near this place called Hollywood. And it, I had to leave America, go to Britain, wait a few years, do some TV, and eventually That's the get back irony. Here. <laughs> That's the irony. And you left. There was a very specific reason why you left. There was a little war going on uh -huh. in Vietnam, and I was not going to go there and be cannon fodder. And I hitched up with an English girl, and she wanted to return to England. I had, a year before, I had hitchhiked around Europe for four months and loved Europe, and said, let's get out of here. And we went to England, and... I never and then came back. <laughs> you had this advanced knowledge of knowing all the crazies that would lead our country. <laughs> and so there is no regret over staying in, yeah, over staying I, yeah, in no, London. I, 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 I think what's, what's making me crazy at the moment, whatever this disease that America is suffering, has now <laughs> come to England with the, the oh, yes, election of yeah. Boris Johnson. Yeah. We're all in the same madness. Cassandra's box has been opened. And these narcissistic, egotistical liars are springing up like mushrooms everywhere. <laughs> um, what, what are you working on next? Tell me, that, tell me that you're working on several things next. Zero. But I mean, what no. about Detective Detective? Okay, you got me. <laughs> With Richard. You were gonna Richard do the Gravity Design. This is something we wrote after Fisher King, and it never got made. It's been hanging around. And we've been playing with it recently to see if we can put some life back into the thing. Okay. We, haven't, we haven't solved it yet. And, and we've even been talking about would it be better to extend it and make it uh, uh, like six-hour segments so we can really let it breathe a bit. I don't know. It's, it's not there. I am doing a theatrical musical next year. What, what is that? Well, at the end, it's in London at the Old Vic. It's a Sondheim musical. Okay. See, I've moved into opera and things like that. Okay. I just, I, while I'm waiting to get movies off the ground, I have to do these other jobs. Do you simultaneously try to get multiple projects off the ground, or do you focus on one thing at a time? As I far focus as like on one at a time, and I fail. <laughs> That's what I do. And then after spending a couple of years on something, I give up and say, what's out there? Can I do something else to keep busy? Are you, are you, are you open to, to doing stuff for streaming? Are you, or, or? It's all the same to me. I don't, yeah. it's just like the argument between film and digital. I don't care. Uh -huh. These are just techniques to get something up on a screen. I care about the size of the screen is what I care about. That's and good. when I'm watching people watching Star Wars on their iPhone, I want to kill. It's very simple. <laughs> have, have you ever been approached by Marvel to do a superhero film? No, but I can say that when I made Jabberwocky, uh, the king in the film, Max Wall, his assistant, was Stan Lee's daughter. The reason why I ask is <laughs> yeah. because I know that, like, what their model is, is is to take auteurs, uh, and, and usually, usually, you know, from the indie world, and bring them over yeah. to their side. But then at a certain point, and, you know, and they'll give them their style. Like, it's Taika Waititi style. Yeah. It's James Gunn style at the end of the day. But I know that, like, deep toward the end of the process, it's very much... 
many cooks in the kitchen and either you yeah. work with that or you don't not you personally but you know some people like josh whedon yeah. had a problem with that like and i was just curious you know because it would be so great to see terry i know Gilliam's. but i actually look at them and say that's a factory job yeah it is i don't want to do that i right. really i mean if i was younger i might it might be different because you're I still young if I was 40 years old, I would probably love to be off. I mean, the closest I got was Harry Potter because uh, at the beginning of Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling wanted me to do it. Mm-hmm. And David Heyman, the producer, wanted me to do it. And when I got a free trip out to L.A., first-class travel, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, and I had the meeting with the studio. While the boss of the studio, while I'm explaining to him that all the things he wants to do are not going to happen because you can't shoot two at the same time. Yeah. And he's falling asleep, and I know I'm never going to get this job. And, oh, gosh. And, that was, and I'm glad I didn't, because I've had friends who've ended up directing it in tears. Because there's a kind of the yeah. weight of that, all that money and expectation. You don't have the freedom that I insist upon, basically. So Albert Brooks had this, has this saying, um, and I'm paraphrasing here. He believes that would you know of his kind of filmmaker Woody Allen was the last one to get away with not having to have his films tested mm-hmm. and that it all started with him Albert Brooks and how how do you do you do you find a worth in that or do, are you more of like when you test your films is it more family and friends um, and I show it to a lot of people like family friends I said bring your friends I don't care who they are so by the time I'm finished, I know how it plays pretty much. And, and yet, the studio films I did, Fisher King, Twelve Monkeys, we had to bring it over here and do the testing. And I've only learned one thing, and that was on Twelve Monkeys, there was one scene that uh, the score was pushing the love story between Bruce and Madeline, Madeline Stowe. And the audience wasn't buying it. It's the only thing I changed. I just made it more ambiguous, the music. That, that's all. Mm-hmm. I've really learned very little from those screenings because, I mean, with Fisher King, we had in the studio, I, I played the game a little bit. So I said, okay, those chances you changed your talk about, it. I will consider them. We'll put them in, in the next screening and see if it, if it I, I said, if it makes... Uh, in the numbers, a significant, significant difference. I will seriously consider making those changes. So I equivocated a lot. And we had the two screenings. The second screening, it had the same numbers. But the studio was so exciting. It's so much better. And the next day on the phone, I said, sorry. What I said is what I stick by. The numbers right. were not significantly different. So I'm putting all those scenes <laughs> back in. <laughs> um, the um, what is Detective Detective about? Can you share that with us? Well, it's basically uh, a middle-aged New York detective who has become cynical, just destroyed by life in the hard mean streets of New York and all the problems. He had once been a young hero when he first came to town, and now he's fat, burnt out, and he ends up through a strange set of experiences. Uh, experiences he's probably having a nervous breakdown he ends up in a kid's fantasy world where the rules of new york don't apply <laughs> you don't kill a dragon by shooting it with a gun because every time you shoot you get another head you've got to use a stick a sword you know a yeah. branch of a tree that's how you kill them wow kids rules not 
adult Ruth. And it's, it's, a, it's very much about a cynical guy who's burnt out. He doesn't believe anymore. And that's what I'm dealing with. It's funny because at the moment, I think so much on the, the script is about right now. It's like when we wrote it back then, right. the world was that the world is becoming so cynical. The sense um, that an individual has no power, nothing. You can't really change it, and that's central to it. There's also an element about climate change and what we do with the world around us, and 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 we haven't quite solved all the problems. But I love the idea that. We've got a bad guy who decides we're going to take on nature. We're going to whip its ass. You know, it's been making our lives difficult for a long time. This is our moment. Yeah, we're taking it down. <laughs> so we have a fan question. Yeah. Um, Evan O'Sullivan uh, from Boston, Massachusetts, who... Not him again. He, uh, He's been stalking me for years, this he, guy. What's he going was, on? Uh, a huge uh, prophet of Brazil back in high school. Um, he he was wondering, you know, pa Python uh, was compared to the Beatles, even by George Harrison. And who would you say from the outside looking in, who's a group of collaborators now who do you think are worth that mantle, either in music or um, in comedy or in film? I don't know. I know so little about the world these days. Yeah. I don't know. You know, uh, I've, I really don't, I, I really don't know. I just... Literally, what do I listen to? I listen to Arcade Fire, who I love. Uh -huh. uh, I listen to Tom Waits, who I love even more. I just, I love, I listen to Ethiopian music, which is so wonderful. <laughs> so I really can't comment. I, yeah. I'm so, I'm an old fart, completely out of touch with oh, the no. world we're living in. <laughs> oh, no. Would you ever go back to... Um like, uh, would you ever want to do an animated full feature film? Nope. I mean, I really walked away from animation. I really don't want to. In fact, what's Avengers? Animated, it seems to be. These yeah. are animated films. Those are the real ones, but they look like the real world, or at least like photorealistic. But they're basically working in the world of animation. I think they should be in that category and not in films about human beings. And what's your take on visual effects? Because, you know, yeah. your classic films have a lot of, you yeah. used a lot of scale models. Yeah, so I what, use everything. I mean, I've used CG from years. Mm -hmm. I just don't let it be seen. I dirty it down. I use it carefully because I just want the world to feel like a real world, even when I'm doing fantasy. Uh, and it was interesting, on Quixote, we shot everything outside. Mm -hmm. And it was important because if you're dealing with a guy who's misinterpreting the world around him, I want to stay in the real world, and we can, we only, we don't get to see what he sees, basically, except there's a bit towards the end, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was your most, in a good way, what yeah. was the most challenging part of the shoot outside of the whole financing calamity? Like in production, was there a particular sequence that? No, um, not really. The, the biggest. Here's a, we were outside all the time. We didn't have much weather cover. We were very vulnerable. And the weather was very kind to us, except for the big night. We have this big scene in this monastery with this gigantic figure that is going to burn. And we had hundreds of extras all in elaborate costumes. That was the night it rained. <laughs> <laughs> and the fire didn't go up. And to make it worse, we were in this incredible uh, ancient cloister to cover the stones so we didn't harm anything with this big flag inflagration we were making. We had put plastic down and sand on top of it to make sure everything was safe. 
But the plastic had covered the drain holes, so the cloister is becoming a swimming pool, filling up. <laughs> but that was, that was it. Everything just went well. I mean, I, I, it's, it's so boring, the film. There's a documentary made about it, which avoided the problems of, the, it's the same people who made Lost in La Mancha. Okay. But their problem on this one, there wasn't a disaster taking place. <laughs> they kind of created a false drama out of just me. <laughs> what, what advice can, before we go, what advice can you give filmmakers or creatives about resilience? I mean, you've overcome so much things. Like even in the wake of, of Heath Ledger's death, you put Parnassus back, yeah. back together again. All these actors called up. I think the I don't know I don't really give advice because I don't know anything about filmmaking except doing what I do. I just think I'm a craftsman who deals with the problems. That's all. Yeah. And resilience is something something I don't know. I've been at it long enough to have thick skin and a kind of I surround myself with people who are smart and think and when I want to go home because Heath Ledger is lying dead in bed and they say you can't you've got to finish this film. Yeah. And so they're saying, we've got to get a great actor. I said, there's nobody that's going to be able to take over that role. So the way my brain works, it, let's have three actors do it. Right. And then you call up Johnny Depp, who I'd introduced to Heath uh, sometime earlier. Johnny, i got a problem. He says, whatever it is, I'm there. So the insurance company produces all the money had been marching away from this <laughs> with Heath's death. They all came back. Johnny Depp! Oh! <laughs> <laughs> and so then, then Johnny's there. Now I, I say we've got to get two other actors. And Jude Law and Colin Farrell were both, I discovered, friends of Heath. Because uh -huh. I only wanted people who knew and loved Heath to be right. involved. I was offered some really big names who wanted to be part of it. No way. This is family. Uh -huh. <laughs> and we got through it. So, and, and the film it looked like it was meant to be that way. That's what's awful. I, I always find working on films, the film is making itself. I'm the hand that writes, but the film is doing it. And it's like, Coyote, after all those years, it's Adam Driver and Jonathan Price. And you couldn't ask for a better cast, especially since Jonathan had been trying to get me to hire him for 15 years. Yeah, and now he he's the Pope. <laughs> well, yeah, I know. I, I love the fact that two popes, you got two Welsh actors to play two popes. <laughs> One Spanish speaking, the other German speaking. You go to Wales to get these people? <laughs> but they look like them. They do. Yeah. I mean, I, I wrote Jonathan saying that Francis is going to have to really pull up his socks, work hard to be as good as Jonathan was as him. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. No, thank you. Thank you.